0: Welcome to the Age of Organizational Effectiveness. This is a podcast that explores stories about organizations and their performance. I'm your host, Charles Chandler. This is episode number 103 in our podcast series, and I'm calling it Adopting a Collaborative Stance. In this episode, I welcome a guest author to the podcast, Paul Skinner. You'll be hearing from Paul in a few minutes as we discuss his book. In addition to writing and speaking about Collaborative Advantage, Paul is the founder of the Agency of the Future, which helps clients create Collaborative Advantage to drive their own organizational success. He's also the founder of the social enterprise called Pimp My Cause, which brings together marketers and good causes to create transformational pro bono projects for social good. I'm joined now by Paul Skinner, who's the founder of the Agency of the Future. He's written a book called Collaborative Advantage, How Collaboration Beats Competition as a Strategy for Success. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for being on the podcast.
1: Good morning, Charles. I've I've enjoyed uh, some of your previous episodes and appreciate the invitation to join you for this one.
0: Well, it's great to have you here, and hopefully the technology will work for us as we're on this Skype call. So let me just get into your book. Why did you want to write The Collaborative Advantage?
1: Well, I, I hope I'm still young enough not to call myself a veteran, but I've been working in different capacities to help organizations to grow for over 20 years and running my own advisory practice for around 10 years. And during that time, I've become increasingly interested in in the often hidden ways that we are dependent on what you might call collective value creation. I mean you you mentioned Skype just now, for example. I may feel self sufficient in responding to your Skype call and that it's easy enough to click on the respond button to accept the call. But of course I have absolutely no idea and no true understanding of how the vibrations from your voice box are turned into packets of information that somehow get from your device to mine. And as our world has become ever more interconnected, ever more Interdependent and in more or less hidden ways, we increasingly depend on this kind of collective value creation. I've come increasingly to the conviction that the dominant idea in the history of ideas about business, and certainly in the history of ideas about business strategy, the concept of competitive advantage and the metaphor more broadly of competition and competitiveness as the ways to drive success in business or the keys to economic value creation, may often in our current environment actually be holding us back and may be particularly pernicious in doing so, specifically when we're not deliberately using these ideas of competition and competitiveness, because they've become so ubiquitous that they really infiltrate our core assumptions. I'm not sure who it was who said that our assumptions are the things that we don't know that we have, but I do feel they can be the most dangerous narratives because once we've relegated those narratives to our subconscious, we no longer notice them, therefore we can no longer question them or challenge them. And yet they can have a profoundly limiting effect on what kind of opportunities we spot in the first place, what we think about those opportunities, what we do about them, and ultimately, therefore, on what we can achieve. So I began to think that a model of collaborative advantage might be more valuable and more useful and more attuned to our current business environment and began putting that into practice in my client work through their organization and was then reminded of the words of one of my professors back in my college days at Oxford, who said that the difficult thing in writing a book is not actually the writing of a book, but the having of a bookworthy idea. And at the time, I put the words competition and business into the search box on Amazon and found that there were 13,000 titles available on that topic in the UK store, over 20,000 such titles for the US store. And so it struck me that if collaborative advantage can be a more useful model to competitive advantage, that's not just a book-worthy idea, it's a library-worthy idea. So I became increasingly frustrated to not having written the book. So I set out to write Collaborative Advantage, the book that if it had already existed, I would have found it most useful to read. So my aim wasn't so much to convince the reader to adopt Collaborative Advantage rather than Competitive Advantage, but more than that, to be useful to the reader and empowering people running organizations, taking leading roles in organizations to achieve more by creating Collaborative Advantage and to see opportunities for growth that may not previously have been visible to them. So I set out in the book specifically to answer the questions, how can we grow our businesses more effectively by better harnessing that value creating potential that lies outside our business as well as inside it? I'm also interested in how we can solve social problems by more strongly harnessing our collective agency and in particular, perhaps most importantly, the agency of whichever groups we're most looking to support. And in identifying what kinds of methods and techniques can make it easier for leaders, entrepreneurs, organizations to maximize the collaborative advantage they can create and to achieve a new level of success for the organizations that they work for.
0: Yeah, I think one of your main points is that the competitive advantage is increasingly a broken model. And so why, why is this the case, do you think?
1: Yes, and, and I'm not the first person to criticize the idea of competitive advantage. So as I make clear in the book, other people have seen limitations in the concept before me. So for example, many people point out that there is something intrinsic to the idea of competition that lends itself to a zero-sum game. Now, If I'm looking to compete with you, my natural instincts are to run alongside you, to replicate what you're doing but to try to offer more of it for less. And of course, that can simply extract value from both of our businesses. And from time to time, we see the unpleasant consequences of what happens even if you win a competitive race to the bottom. More ideologically focused commentators have often pointed out that the concept of competitive advantage has been associated with maximizing shareholder value, and that that has too often come at the expense of stakeholder value. And that is currently leading many groups to question the very purpose of the corporation. And I know that that's a a topic that you take an interest in yourself and have dedicated previous episodes to.
0: Yes, that's right.
1: Financial analysts have pointed out that the length of time that you can hold on to a competitive advantage has diminished at an ever-accelerating rate ever since the idea was first introduced. So it may not be the long-term strategy we thought it was. And then you have commentators such as the authors Kim and Mo from the Blue Ocean Strategy series of books, who might also make good guests on the show, and who argue, I think really quite convincingly, that the biggest disruptions we're likely to face probably don't come from our direct competitors anyway. So too tight a focus on competitor strategy can leave us blindsided by bigger change. Now, My particular criticism is that the idea of competitive advantage too readily creates a perception of the relationship between our business and the environment in which we operate, which causes us to miss opportunities for growth. It too readily reinforces the idea that we inside the business are the value creators. We are the heroes of the story and that people exist outside our business of relevance to us, primarily either as competitors seeking to steal that hard-earned value, or as customers who we too readily reduce to the role of consumers, which is the word in the whole of the English language that I most detest, and which seems to imply that the human agency of our customers can be limited to their capacity to diminish by a few units the world supply of whichever resource we happen to be selling them Um, and of course many launches of supposedly or in principle superior products or services fail precisely because the businesses behind them the entrepreneurs behind them don't fully understand the ecosystem into which they're launching those products and services. They don't fully recognise and understand the true dynamics driving that environment. And therefore, even an in principle better product may fail. So in the book, a couple of things I try to do is firstly embed a new set of assumptions that value isn't primarily created within the business it's primarily created in the spaces between us that the way to succeed isn't necessarily being the best per se it's carefully identifying the group or groups that we most wish to support and finding the right ways to share in the value that we can actively create with them and that our customers, far from being the passive recipients of value, as if we were just pouring superior value into them, actually are almost always the people doing the most to improve their own lives, whether it's their working lives or their personal lives, that's relevant to our business offering. And that perhaps our role in business is, can be better understood as finding the right ways to make it easier, more complete, more effective or more magical for them to complete that role. And so in the book, I develop a whole new model for growth based on that completely new starting point as a radical alternative to the conventional goal of creating competitive advantage.
0: You know, in, in, in the podcast, we've explored uh, some ways of value creation outside our business. And one example I like to use is the, the idea of, of going into a big box store and buying a riding lawnmower and basically you're you're exchanging financial uh, flow for economic value and so when the consumer gets the lawnmower home uh, he's actually making a bet that the price that he paid for the lawnmower uh, is less than the economic value of using the lawnmower once he gets it home Uh, so you know if you didn't have the lawnmower you'd have to let's say pay someone uh, uh, several dollars a week to come and mow your lawn. But once you have a lawnmower, then the economic value uh, that you create is, um, you know, by mowing the lawn yourself, um, you're, you're gaining that value back. Um, and so over time, let's say you use it for several years, the, the value you create in mowing your own lawn uh, is greater, much greater than, than what you paid for the lawnmower. And, and so the consumer uh, is actually, as you say, uh, creating more value than, uh, than what, um, you know, was there to start with. Does that make any sense? Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Or is it, uh, is it something slightly different? Yeah, no, that
1: makes... no that, that makes total sense. Um, in fact, I would say that we don't have... A business opportunity unless our customers can create more value with the solutions that we're providing than it costs them to buy that. So I would say that what you've described in uh, in very readily understood, understandable as economic terms for the lawnmower is actually true for any business transaction. I mean I, an example I like to give is, is Starbucks. Um, if we were to meet in Starbucks for coffee the value of our conversation is almost certainly going to exceed the value of the cappuccino that happens to go with it. Um, if you're a construction company, you you can't sell the construction of a building unless the university that you're selling the building to can create more value from running that building as student accommodation than it costs them to buy your service. The university, in turn, can only do that if its students can create more value in their lives from having been enrolled in that university and enjoying the experience than it costs them to do that, and it costs them to support themselves going through that process.
0: Uh, so the basic idea of collaborative advantage, then, I suppose is that you want to work with your customers and with your other stakeholders to maximize the amount of total value that's being created um, among yourselves, among, among the group there. Um, and it's an outside-in framework, so you're starting with your customer and even their customer, perhaps, the customer's customer, uh, to see how that value um, can be you know, maximized in a way.
1: Yes, that's, that's exactly the principle. You know, Antoine de saint Exupéry wrote a marvelous line that the perfect relationship is based not on looking inwards at each other, but on looking outwards in the same direction. And in a sense, collaborative advantage is an entire model for growth that is built on those kind of relationships.
0: Yes. So would you expand a little bit more on the outside-in framework that you have uh, in the book?
1: Yes, of course. So uh, as I was suggesting earlier, the idea of competitive advantage has become so dominant that it really does infiltrate our core assumptions and limits the kinds of opportunities that we spot. Now, I suggest that one of the most effective and powerful ways to overcome that kind of cognitive bias or even a perceptual bias can be to deliberately ask ourselves a whole new set of questions so the outside in framework begins uh, with the powerful starting point of asking us to move away from the question what do we do best the competitive question and towards the collaborative question what do we enable people to do better i mean if you like a very obvious example everybody will know when amazon launched the first online bookstore They essentially moved away from trying to be a better shop and instead replaced that with the proposition of we are here to better enable you to choose. And that's driven uh, their innovation, their business model, their partnerships right up to the present day. Now, the outside in framework at the core of the book picks up on this approach. And so systematically provokes us to ask a whole new set of questions of ourselves and our organisations so that we can explore. First of all, how do we find that common purpose with our customers and other stakeholders? How do we create the right opportunities through our innovation to enable people to pursue that purpose? Whether that's by putting cooperation, enabling ideas at the heart of our business model our customer value propositions, our service delivery mechanisms, our customer support, or even our communications themselves. I look at how we design an environment, both inside the business internally for our staff, but also outside the business in terms of um, influencing the environment of our customers and other partners that's conducive to that purpose. Uh, one of the concepts I look at in the book is the principle of extended cognition that implies that our decisions can be so heavily influenced by the environment in which we take them that is almost as if they are structured in that environment rather than inside our own minds. I look at how we can mainstream the propositions that we're bringing to market by better working with our early adopters to understand their needs and priorities, and by using their influence to draw along a a broader mainstream market. And I look at how we can scale our offerings by building the right partnerships. So collectively, this adds up to a new model for growth based on a revised understanding of the value creation process, much in the way that, that you described in your in your question earlier.
0: Yeah, and as I understand it, you're trying to create a narrative uh, that brings out uh, the way in which you create value, but also how your customer, what role that they play, and how they can then um, identify with your brand and, and see how to engage with it absolutely
1: No, a a different customer purpose can be a way to avoid the the traps of competition so for example let's think about red bull and coca-cola so if you were going to launch a drink to compete with coca-cola then you might think well we better offer a larger size so that people are getting more for less We better offer a superior taste so that people prefer our drink or we'd better offer um, maybe a cheaper price. Now, when Red Bull was launched, they didn't do any of those things. So first of all, it was incredibly expensive, much more expensive than a Coke. Secondly, you only got a tiny fraction of what you get in a can or a bottle of Coke. And thirdly, the taste of Red Bull not only was not popular in taste tests before its launch, but people didn't kind of just say, do you know what? I don't like it that much. Maybe it's not for me. People in the taste testing said this is absolutely the most disgusting thing that I've ever tasted. But of course, all of this worked for Red Bull because Red Bull didn't choose to compete with Coke per se. Um Instead, they sought to enable a different end customer purpose. So Red Bull is there to give you wings. It's there, uh, its taste makes you think and its quantity and its price are all geared around helping you to understand that this is something that is of an almost pharmaceutical potency and designed to really power you into a more life, a more extreme lifestyle in some way, shape or form.
0: Clearly, Red Bull enables a different purpose. Whether it's um, you know addressing a hangover from the night before or, or something else, it's it's different <laughs> than the um, the refreshing moment that you might get from a Coke. Definitely. Yeah. Toward the end of the book, you note that a well-designed approach to collaboration could engage a whole of society response to global challenges. How do you think about that and, and how how could you elaborate on that idea uh, to help our listeners uh, understand how to do that?
1: Yes. So uh, I, I know that you have listeners who work for nonprofit organizations and governments as well as businesses. And it, it is, as you say, very much my contention that collaborative advantage, as well as serving business leaders, can also serve Organisations that are addressing social problems. Um, And yes, I believe that that can scale to tackling global problems through whole of society solutions. Maybe just to illustrate the approach, I might start with the local and then see how we can expand to global. So, uh, one of the things I do in addition to my advisory work is I run a, a network of professional marketers that support charities and social enterprises with their marketing skills and expertise. Now, I used to think that the charities and social enterprises we support improve people's lives. But then I came to a more nuanced consideration that they actually do something more powerful than that. They typically provide the conditions or a context that their beneficiaries use to improve their own lives. And that that distinction gets to the heart of how they unlock a self-perpetuating sustainable change rather than just applying a quick fix. So to give one example, we support a charity called Food Cycle that provides nutritious meals and good company once a week at a whole variety of locations across the UK to groups of vulnerable people who otherwise might lack access to either Good food or good company. Now, if Food Cycle was there to improve people's lives, I would say, you could say, you could argue that that isn't doing a good enough job. You know, one meal a week is a relatively small portion of our nutrition. A couple of hours of good company is a drop in the ocean of what could be a, a, a week of isolation and loneliness for many of the people served by Food Cycle. But of course, the people who go to food cycle actively use it as a starting point. So I remember hearing from an elderly woman who was the last surviving member of her family and who had become very lonely and isolated, but was persuaded to go along to food cycle. And first of all, just tasting good, freshly cooked food. Reminded her of the value and and how much difference you can feel with good nutrition and re-inspired her to start taking better care of herself and putting in the effort to cook properly at home when she had become so lonely that she had struggled to see the point giving her the opportunity to enjoy food cycle once a week also she said gave her something to look forward to throughout the week so it was changing the quality of her experience on the days she wasn't at food cycle and then the opportunity to meet some friendly faces and to start making that a regular feature actually gave her some new friends some new confidence and a starting point to start rebuilding her social life for herself and to to have a reason start living again now as for the local i think we can say the same about global problems Um, and of course a global problem can imply the need for collaborative advantage because a problem is global in the first place precisely because there's no one group of people who can solve it on their own and in the book one example i give is the example of disasters and emergencies where Drivers such as climate change, urbanisation and increasing complexity of risk profile mean that the demand for humanitarian support in disasters and emergencies contexts inevitably runs far greater than the supply of that support that's available. You know, the international humanitarian system simply can't get there quick enough, stay there long enough or make enough of a difference to really match that scale of need. Um, And so an approach based on collaborative advantage tells us to look beyond the provision of meals, the provision of shelter and to take as a starting point to try to find the right ways to restore the autonomy and the agency of people affected by those disasters and emergencies in the first place where they've been endangered um, or lost Um, and to better to start by asking questions such as you know if you're affected by that disaster what action should you best be taking to help yourself and the people around you And trying to understand how we can better empower people affected to take those actions. And then to start better empowering the people that they will themselves most readily be able to turn to. And then build the whole approach backwards from there. And these kind of approaches to solving global problems can be thoroughly principled in that they are beginning with the priorities and agency of the people at the center of those difficulties. But they're also the most effective because it's about maximizing the collective resource that we're able to mobilize to solve those problems.
0: Yeah, so we're, we're definitely stronger together and we move through the world in a more effective way if we leverage uh, uh, you know, uh, against um, each other's strengths. Um, so I'm, I think it's a fascinating book. We, we certainly can't cover all of it today, uh, but are there other areas of the book that we haven't covered uh, that you'd like to highlight?
1: Well, well, actually, as uh, the author of a, a, a book called Collaborative Advantage, you may not be surprised to know that I quite like it when things are two-way processes. So if we could, I'd quite like to leave, in some sense, the last word to your listeners in that uh, I'm sure you can put my contact information in your show notes and I would love to hear from people what are the examples of collaborative advantage in practice that you most enjoy finding in your own business environments what are the examples of collaborative advantage that that your listeners may be working on for themselves Uh, and because above all more more than being interested in simply convincing people of the merits of collaborative advantage, I am mostly here in the book and in other work to empower people to actively uncover opportunities um, that previously may not have been visible to them. I'd also love to hear what kind of challenges people run up against in creating collaborative advantage and exploring how those obstacles can be overcome.
0: Right. And certainly I will, uh, in the show notes, uh, highlight uh, your connection um, uh, details and we will encourage people to to contact you. So thanks very much for being with us today, Paul. It's been a fascinating journey and uh, we wish you best of luck in in all of your endeavors. Thank you very
1: much, Charles. It's been a great pleasure.
0: And that's all for today. Join us again next time when we'll Consider more stories about organizations and their performance. In the meantime, you can access all of our podcast episodes at our website, ageofoe.com. And you can access the show notes for this particular episode by going to ageofoe.com 103. And I'm your host, Charles Chandler, saying so long for now.